I would like to make an amendment to the announcements just a second ago. I had lunch with Charlie after services last Sunday morning, and I never would throw him under the bus publicly, but since he threw himself there, we'll just leave him there for a few minutes. Uh, but Sunday, I told him, I said, uh, because he mentioned in the announcements, come back Sunday night alive. And I said, well, I think it would be hard for us to come back on Sunday night if we weren't alive. And so, uh, so there you go. But with regard to the in-person piece, people are doing the in-person thing quite uh, on, online, uh, but we would rather you do it in person. And so if you're watching, uh, get out of your pajamas and put on, take a shower and put on your clothes and come to worship next Sunday. Be with us right in this room. We'd love to have you. Be fantastic. I'm going to be preaching a sermon this morning that I hope will be of benefit to each and every one of us as I do each and every week. And I hope that it begins with me. That's where every sermon, in my opinion, should begin. It should begin with the one who is sharing it. Before we do that, by way of introduction, I want to pass along the lyrics to an old African-American spiritual that was penned in, so far as we know, about 1927. You are probably familiar with these words. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now, just imagine us, and it'd be great if we could just sing this right now, but I, I won't lead it. Um, but if we were going to sing this song together, we would repeat that first line three times, because that's the process. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the wind and the rain in his hands. Isn't it interesting how that when you go back and you read the Psalms, when you think about God's power over all, we're not just seeing his power over people, but we see his power over nature. And uh, this song, this old spiritual, reminds us of that very ideal. He's got the little tiny baby in his hands. He's got you and me brother in his hands. And you think about the, if you've done any uh, research at all on this hymn, if you go back and, and look at that concept, he's got you and me brother in his hands, and then you and me sister in his hands. He's talking about brothers and sisters in the flesh, uh, not brothers and sisters in the Christ, uh, though we certainly are in his hands as, as his people. But there's a great sense in which all of us, created in the image of God, are in the hands of God. He has, he has us in his hands. And then you've got, uh, he's got everybody here in his hands. Such a beautiful song. And the thing I like, one of the things I like about this, this hymn, this song, is it takes a very simple idea, which is God's in control, and then it shares simple lines, and we just repeat it over and over and over again as if to ingrain in our hearts the reality that he does, in fact, have the whole world in his hands. So let's think about that for just a few minutes this morning. He's got the whole world in his hands. God's sovereignty is the subject of the Bible. In fact, we might even say that the sovereignty of God makes the perfect bookends to the Bible. So look with me at Genesis chapter uh, 14. Genesis chapter 14. I've done something a little bit differently this morning. I've not put any scripture before us, but just the references, because I'd like for us to take the time to turn our pages in the Bible 
Just really take the time to read the Scripture and reflect on the words. Genesis 14 and verse 19, and I appreciate the way that the Scripture was read this morning. That Scripture reference was for another sermon I was working on, and I changed my mind, as I sometimes do. Uh, and so uh, I'm not preaching from that text this morning, but I appreciate the way in which it was, uh, it was read and how that we were allowed the opportunity to pause for a moment to find the text so that we could get into it and read it together this morning. Speaking of our young people, please come back this evening at 6 o'clock. Our young men will be directing our service tonight. Genesis 14 and verse number 19. I'm going to start in verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedor Lamor and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shavah, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. You see, from the very beginning, the Bible proclaims, Moses proclaims, that God has got the whole world in his hands. And then we fast forward to the end of the book, the end of the Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Revelation chapter 1, 4 and 5. And as you're turning there, verse 3 is the reminder of the fact that we'll be blessed for both reading and then keeping the things that are written in this book. And verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the first to, to die, to be resurrected, to never die again, and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and watched us from sins in his own blood. This is a summary, it is a, a divine summary of the book of Colossians, in particular chapter 1, in which we see the sovereignty of God, in this case the sovereignty of the Christ. And then, right in the middle, you turn to the book of Psalms, and look at chapter 24, Psalms 24, beginning with verse 1. The earth, it's the Lord's, it's Jehovah's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. God, His sovereignty, His kingship, His power, His might, His greatness, the perfect bookends of the Bible. Those 66, we sometimes call them 66 books, maybe a better way of looking it is, 66 chapters of one book. And the, the bookends of that great Bible speak of the sovereignty of God. But then add to that, I want us to think about the idea that God, because of His sovereignty, God is in control of the universe. God is in control of the world. You and I are not in control of the universe. Now we may, as parents, we may think of our little home as the world, and we may tell our kids, your world is the home, and I'm in control of your world. Well, that's not exactly true. God is in control. 
He's in control of our, our world at home. He's in control of our world at school. He's in control of our world at work. He's in control of the entire world, of the entire universe, and not us. I want you to look in your Bible to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. We'll read a few verses here. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And I want you to, to begin with me there in verse number 4. There, it's a fairly lengthy reading, but I want us to read several verses to really be impressed with this idea that we're not in control here. And I think that is a reminder that we need, especially in our world today, given the geopolitical culture that we find ourselves in. We like to think of ourselves in control. We like to think of, of world leaders as in the ultimate driver's seat of the universe, but they are not. God is in control. I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 4, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I was in control. And I saw a dream which made me afraid. I am losing control. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head, they troubled me. I've now lost control. Therefore made I decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me so that I can take control once more. In verse 7, looking for an interpretation of the dream, all of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof because they had no control. But at the last, Daniel, he came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, not the God of the universe here, but the holy gods, plural, is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I may see, have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Maybe, maybe, I can regain control. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed. Here's what I saw. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew, and it was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, cut down the tree, cut off its branches, shake off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let this portion be with the beasts and the grass thereof. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. 
This matter is by decree of the watchers and the man of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and sitteth up upon the basis of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation but thou art able for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee now i've got to give you a homework assignment you've got to go and read the rest of this story when you go home this afternoon it's absolutely incredible but for those of you who have let me just remind you of, of this as you go into it and read it again or read it for the first time. What Nebuchadnezzar is going to find out is because he thought he was in control, he's going to completely lose control until he sees who has ultimate control. You see, you and I are not in control. The world does not bow for us, nor to us, because we do not have the whole world in our hands. But God does. I want us to think about this idea, and that is that because God has the whole world in His hands, because He is in control, He should be the ruler of my life. He's the only one that can be. He's the only one that has the right to be. Based on the meaning of what we see on that image behind me. From the beginning, arguably before the foundation of the world, God knew what was going to happen to a piece of himself. I say to a piece of himself because you and I, as parents, if we are parents, we understand what it's like when a child hurts because it's as if a piece of ourselves is hurting. We experience that pain on some level. Jesus, or, or Paul wrote about this idea as he is an inspired penman and says that we are to rejoice when folks rejoice and we are to weep when those weep but there's just an extra level of weeping that takes place when our kids hurt and the father's son was going to hurt Matthew chapter 26 and he did and right now having put down that crown he wears a throne and Luke, the writer, by inspiration of the book of Acts, reminds us that there is a king reigning right now, one Jesus. And as King Jesus, he is, should be rather, the Lord, the ruler of our lives. I want to take you to a few passages. They all begin, they're all in the book of Matthew. So we'll just hang out there for a moment. Matthew chapter 11. Listen to the words of King Jesus. Verse 25. I thank Thee, O Father, Lord, 
of heaven and earth. Because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. He's Lord. He's King. He's Savior. He's a son, meaning he knows what it's like to be me. And because of these things that Jesus is, Jesus says, come unto me. Jesus is inviting us to come before his throne. He's inviting us to kneel before him. He's inviting us to make a confession that says not just I see you as the son of God, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Romans 10, 10 and following, but it's so much more than that. When we think about this idea of coming to Jesus for the very first time and, and making that good confession, I believe Jesus is the son of God, just like the nobleman did in Acts chapter 8, if, if that is the extent of our understanding of the good confession, we've not gone far enough. Because really what we're doing is we're making a confession, God, Lord Jesus, I now see you for who you really are. You're the Lord. More importantly, I want you to be my Lord. And we bow before Him and we make a commitment on, at that moment that we've chosen some, someone, something different for our lives. And that's God. And He says, come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's a good king right there. A king that offers us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. A king that offers us peace. For I am meek and lowly in your heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. A king that offers us mercy and grace that we don't deserve. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Back up to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says in verse number 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I'm, I will liken unto him as a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and fell upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then Matthew said this, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And then we, for context, we bring in Matthew chapter 16. 
Jesus asked his disciples who were present on the occasion. He said, verse 13, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Boy, they jumped right up and they, answer, they had an answer for that question, didn't they? They said, well, Lord, some say that you're John the Baptist and some say that you're Elisha and others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I can see Jesus because I know what comes next. I can see Jesus make eye contact with Peter. And he says, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now notice Jesus' response. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Now it's very interesting to me why he uses the word blessed. Blessed doesn't mean just happy. But blessed is this idea of, of being able to experience joy in the face of adversity. And it's almost like Jesus knew the future or something. He was going to experience adversity. Peter, that is. He was going to experience adversity. And he says, blessed are you. You're going to experience joy in the face of adversity, Simon, son of Jonah, or Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, there's our word again. The one that we saw in Matthew chapter 7. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of, of hell, literally the grave, shall not prevail against it. And what he's saying here in this moment to, to, to all of the apostles, but specifically addressing these comments to Peter, he says, I am the rock solid foundation upon which your faith should be built. I am the rock solid foundation upon which the church was established contextually. I have the whole world in my hands. That's what he was saying. Look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. And when he, when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And the disciples then went about performing great miracles and wonders and signs and they said, look at our power. No. They never once said that. Why? Because they were nothing without Jesus. And finally, in the last chapter of Matthew, verse 18, Jesus said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Jesus, Jesus has the right to be the ruler of our lives. Jesus should be the ruler of our lives. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? I can't answer that question. I cannot answer that question for anybody but myself. I could speculate. We could spend a little time together and I could, I could listen to you. And I could listen to the way you talk. I could hear the things that dominate your conversation. I could spend a little time with you. I could look into perhaps your character. 
And I would have a pretty good idea as to where your allegiance was at. But the truth is, nobody but you and God really knows if He's the Lord of your life. I want you to look. I didn't put these on the screen just because I wanted to keep that question before us all. But I want you to look at the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we read about some preachers that were arrested and then released. In Acts 4, verse 18, it says, And they called them, and they commanded them, Peter and John commanded them, not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Reminds me of this fellow in the first century by the name of, I think it was first century, maybe in the second century, by the name of Demosthenes. And he said that uh, he was confronted by the law, and the law told him to stop talking about Jesus. And he said, well, I, I can't stop talking about Jesus. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to do that. Well, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, then we're just going to put you in prison. Well, why don't you go ahead and put me in prison? Because if you put me in prison, I'll have a little bit more time to, to study Scripture, to talk to God. Well, if you keep doing that, then we're just going to kill you. And Demosthenes said, well, that would be wonderful. You go right ahead and kill me because then I'll get to meet Jesus sooner. Well, here are Peter and John, and Peter and John were told, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye for. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Jeremiah and Isaiah were preachers in the Old Testament like Peter and John were in the New Testament. And Jeremiah, on one occasion, I believe this is in Jeremiah chapter 4, but somewhere in Jeremiah, you can just read the book, you'll find it. Um, but Jeremiah said, I, I, I'm just going to give up. I, I'm, I'm not going to preach anymore. I'm just going to quit. Nobody's listening anyway. I'm the only one that wants to do the right thing, and I'm just going to quit. I'm going to give it up. And then Jeremiah said, just like Peter and John, I, I can't give it up. I've got a fire burning within me. I can't stop talking about God. You know why? You know that, why that was the case with Jeremiah? I, and Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, you know that, why that was the case with Peter and John? Why it would be the case with, later with Paul? Is because they made Jesus the Lord of their lives. We drop down just a little bit, same chapter, look at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is 
who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Why do they engage in such... I'm not going to say the word that I was thinking. It wasn't a bad word. It was just a strong word. But why were they engaged in such foolishness? For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand had thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the Holy Child, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We may do these things. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? If Jesus is not the Lord of your life, then one day, you'll wish that he was. I'm going to close with Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. Three passages from Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the bookends of life. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. Is He the Lord of your life now? If not, one day you'll wish that He was. Chapter 4 and verse number 8 says, and the four beasts and, and had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And there is John writing down what he sees, and he sees this vision into heaven. And these folks are crying out to God, to Jesus, as the Lord of their lives and they could do it with joy in verse number 8 of chapter 18 it says therefore shall her plagues come in one day death and mourning and famine and she shall be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her in chapter 1 we see the claim of Jesus I am the beginning and the end in chapter 4 there's the call of Jesus come to me make me your Lord but in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 8, for those that refuse, there's the cry. Will Jesus be the Lord of your life? If not now, one day He will be. Don't wait. Come to God in faith. Make the confession, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And state your desire that He'll be your Lord. Repent. Change your mind about sin. Be immersed in water. Just like Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. 
And upon that confession and faith and baptism, repentance, of course, you'll be a Christian. And Jesus will be the Lord of your life. And He, in a unique way, will hold you in the palm of His hands. Think about it. As together we stand and as we sing.